welcome to the War Studies podcast. We bring you world-leading research from the School of Security Studies at King's College London, the largest community of scholars in the world dedicated to the study of all aspects of security, defence and international relations. We aim to explore the complex realm of conflict because the study of war is fundamental to understanding the world we live in and the world we want to live in. So it shows the Russians spying on the British, spying on the Germans, spying on the Russians and also on the Norwegians. Apart from a brief reference in a post-war security service document, this is the only evidence of the fact that this clearly very valuable agent existed. In today's episode, we talk to Dr. Tony Insull, a senior visiting research fellow in the Department of War Studies, about his new book, in which he reveals his findings from unpublished reports written by intelligence agents that detail some of the most striking achievements of the Norwegian resistance movement in World War II. This is the Secret Intelligence Service, or SIS, citation, recommending the award of a DSO to Torstein Rorby for his work on their behalf in Northern Norway. They sent it to the Admiralty, though Rorby was an army officer, because his work was of particular importance to their interests. Most unusually, the citation did not refer to Rorby by name, but used his operating alias, Pettersen. Second Lieutenant Pettersen, 26, first arrived in Britain in June 1943 and entered our service at once. After training, he was sent by submarine to the north of Norway to work as a WT, or radio operator. These operators were to set themselves up in an attempt to control enemy fleet movements to and from Altafjord and report on their activities. Pettersen, i.e. Rorby, was given the most important and also the most difficult task of establishing a station at the actual German base. He was unfamiliar with the area, but nevertheless succeeded in establishing himself at Elverbakken. Elverbakken is a small place and security measures there are naturally very strict. He obtained an appointment as second cashier with the road authorities and he arranged the details of payments at the various sites so that he was able to travel continuously and at irregular intervals by car past the German battleship Tirpitz. In order to further his reputation for carrying out an irregular routine, he managed to acquire the reputation of being a drunkard. This helped to explain his absences from work when it was especially important for him to be operating his WT set. It was about two months after landing that Pettersen was able to start operating, but his reports from November 1943 onwards have been of very great value. From the start, they have dealt with movements of the German fleet units, the state of repairs of the Tirpitz, and the probable date of her readiness for sea. From February 1944 onwards, he provided most valuable information on which the plan for the fleet air arm attack on the Tirpitz was largely built up. This included detailed information concerning radar, aircraft, high-tension cables, and the position of flak, or anti-aircraft guns, in the neighbourhood. 
Finally, it was arranged that Patterson should take an active part in the attack by providing two hourly weather reports prior to the mission, a vital element in the operation. Patterson carried out this work with the greatest success, though the danger to himself in sending a message every two hours from his home can only be imagined. As a result of the attack, there was an intense search by the Germans for his wireless station, and Patterson told us that he would have to try and escape. However, a second attack on the Tirpitz was then in contemplation, and after consultation with the Admiralty, we explained the situation to Patterson and left the choice to him. He decided to stay on, and he remained there while three further operations against the Tirpitz were in preparation. None of the operations materialized, but from the station's point of view, they were fraught with considerable danger. Patterson finally left for Sweden in the middle of May. Although Patterson has only been in our service for 12 months, he can be credited with the greatest individual success achieved by any of our agents. The establishment of a resident WT reporting agent in the Alterfjord area in proximity to the main anchorage is a task which we had been attempting without success ever since this German base was first established. We had almost reached the conclusion that the sparseness of the population, combined with the intensity of the enemy's security measures, made the problem insoluble. It was only finally resolved as a result of Patterson's exceptional courage and resource, combined with his natural flair for the collection of intelligence. He will be leaving again for Norway soon to carry out a further mission. Welcome back to the War Studies podcast. My name is Aisha Khan and I'll be hosting today's episode where I'm talking to Dr. Tony Insall, Senior Visiting Research Fellow in the Department of War Studies and a Fellow of the Royal Historical Society. Tony worked for over 30 years as a diplomat in the UK Foreign and Commonwealth Office with postings overseas, including Beijing, Kuala Lumpur and Oslo. He's also been an associate editor of FCO Historians and has published several books and articles on Norwegian history. Tony studied Chinese at the School of Oriental and African Studies and later in Hong Kong. He also has a PhD from the Department of War Studies, looking at the early post-war relationship between the British and Norwegian Labour parties. In today's episode, we'll be discussing his most recent book, Secret Alliances, Special Operations and Intelligence in Norway, 1940 to 1945, The British Perspective, which reveals some of the most striking achievements of the Norwegian resistance movement during World War II, gathered from previously unpublished material, both from intelligence agents and the services they worked for. It also illuminates the uniquely close political relationship between Britain and Norway at the time, which contributed to the success of the Norwegian resistance during the war. Thank you for joining us today, Tony. So in 1940, Germany invaded Norway, sending the Norwegian government and royal family into exile in Britain until 1945. Many Norwegians decided to leave their country and travel to Britain to fight against the Germans either in the armed forces or in resistance movements, which obtained important intelligence or carried out sabotage, propaganda, or other activities to degrade the German war effort. 
Throughout history, we've often celebrated the efforts of military personnel and what they contributed to the war. But as the excerpt taken from your book describes, there were many like Warby working undercover and taking great risks to obtain important intelligence. Why are previously unpublished reports like this one so important? And what do you think it represents? Thank you very much for the invitation to be here. Well, first of all, it's very rare to find SIS citations. So it's a document which gives us quite a privileged oversight of what they were trying to do in extremely difficult circumstances. But mainly because it's a contemporary view reflecting SIS's detailed understanding of what agents like Rawby were achieving and their judgment of the value of such work. Your book discusses the two British organisations that contributed to Norwegian resistance, namely the SIS, the Secret Intelligence Service, and the SOE, the Special Operations Executive. Who were the SIS and the SOE, and why was their mission in Norway so critical for the movement? SIS was established before the First World War in 1909 and tasked to obtain secret intelligence outside the United Kingdom. In Norway, the main job of SIS was to obtain intelligence on German naval and merchant shipping, largely through an extensive system of coast-watching stations. There were more than 100 such stations in action at various times, some lasting just a few days, and others more than three years. SOE was set up at Churchill's instigation in 1940 to, as he put it, set Europe ablaze and to carry out sabotage and subversion. There were plenty of important industrial targets for SOE to attack, to prevent the supply of essential war materials to the Germans and to damage their communications and other facilities which were critical to the war effort. That's really interesting. Your book offers a glimpse into the work of the SIS and SOE by sharing stories from top secret archives that, as mentioned, up until quite recently remain close to researchers. How did you go about discovering the interesting stories of the war you tell in your book? Archival research sometimes can be frustrating because file titles can be misleading and something you expect will be worthwhile turns out to be not relevant at all. It can be a bit of an art requiring a little patience, perseverance, curiosity, imagination, and importantly, some luck too. You need to be prepared to spend time spreading your net quite widely, sometimes quite speculatively. And then it can sometimes be very rewarding. For example, the file containing Rawby's DSO citation was called Intelligence Collection Methods. Nothing about him or about Norway at all. And the main paper, was a short history of the Naval Intelligence Department written after the war by one of its former heads. So you describe the art of finding sources and it's definitely an art you've mastered as depicted in your book. So many of the detailed accounts you discovered in the archives came from intelligence agents living in some of Norway's most desolate wilderness and in very dangerous conditions. Could you give us a flavour of what kind of conditions these agents were operating under and why was Northern Norway in particular used as a base? Here's a statistic to give an idea of the scale of the task. It's 2,100 miles from the Swedish border of Norway in the south to the Russian border in the north. But if you follow all the indentations of the coastline, it's 16,400 miles, 
or two-thirds of the circumference of the Earth. So you have to choose your sites carefully. Weather conditions along almost all of the coast, especially in winter, could be very harsh. The stations manned by the agents had to be carefully hidden, which meant that they often lived in caves or primitive dugouts made of earth and stones, buried as far as possible below ground to facilitate camouflage protection. Consequently, they were generally very damp and food quickly became mouldy and deteriorated. Stations were manned by two agents who would live right on top of each other for six months at a time, with the danger of discovery at any moment. It's hard to imagine the strain that must have caused. One agent, returning to Norway for another mission, asked to be supplied with a couple of pairs of boxing gloves. He knew that he would sometimes fall out with his partner, but they needed to make sure that they didn't damage their hands, which could affect their ability to send messages in Morse. That's real pragmatism. Northern Norway was more often used by the Germans to provide bases for its warships, from which they could make sorties to attack Allied convoys providing vital war supplies to Russia. It was often both more difficult and more important. So as you mentioned, a strong political relationship is important with any resistance movement. And it seems like Norway and Britain built a special diplomatic relation as Allied powers during those five years. Are you able to explain how this relationship was achieved and why it was so unique? It was very tough for the refugee Norwegian government when it first arrived, for Britain was preoccupied by the campaign in France and the subsequent threat of a German invasion. But Norway had several assets. First, a very large merchant fleet, which it chartered to the British to make good some of the crippling losses suffered by the Atlantic convoys. As a result, though, Norway lost over 2 million tonnes of shipping and nearly 4,000 seamen. It also managed to smuggle out its remaining gold reserves from under the noses of the Germans, bar about 300 gold coins which were pinched by a sticky-fingered British commando and never recovered, so it could pay for itself throughout the war. It greatly benefited too from the supportive activities of King Haakon, Norway's first king, following independence in 1905, which really helped to raise morale among Norwegians both in exile and back at home. Finally, the pragmatism and flexibility of the Norwegian government, particularly the foreign minister Tryggve Lee, who forged a very close relationship with Antony Eden, the British foreign secretary, playing tennis with him quite regularly. That helped when there were sticky problems which needed to be resolved. What I find quite fascinating is the story you tell the Christmas tree received by London from Oslo each year, which is displayed in Trafalgar Square, arguably one of the most famous Christmas trees in the world. This all began during World War II. So how did the tradition come about and what message does it convey other than being a symbol of Christmas festivities? In February 1942, Dagfinn Ulriksson and Atlas Fardal returned to Britain after spending six months very successfully manning the SIS coast-watching station Eric near Flora, without being able to wash or change their clothes. King Hawkon heard of their return and asked them to come down to London exactly as they were. When he met the filthy and bedraggled pair, he sniffed, 
said something which might be better imagined than translated, and then questioned them keenly for an hour about their activities. Such gestures counted for a great deal among the resistance. When Ulrikson returned to Norway in late 1943 to Man Cygnus, another coast-watching station, he took advantage of a supply delivery by a Shetlands-based submarine chaser to send back a Christmas tree for his monarch, which SIS delivered to King Hawkon on Christmas Eve. It seems that this symbolic gesture planted the seed, which led to the decision in 1947 by the city of Oslo to donate a Christmas tree every year to London in gratitude for wartime support. It's quite funny because I often go down to see the Christmas carolers at Trafalgar Square, but I'd never known the history, so thank you for that. Accounts you convey in your book detail those not only from intelligence and special operations, but notably new material from code breakers during the war. What did a role in code breaking entail, and how did this contribute to the Allied effort? Many people know about the important work by the code breakers at the government code and cipher school at Bletchley Park and their achievements in cracking the German Enigma codes circulated as ultra material, which gave the Allies a significant advantage. But code breaking didn't just depend on the contribution of men like Alan Turing. It needed raw materials, machines, ciphers and code tables for them to work from. Some of these were obtained during operations off the coast of Norway, usually combined operations raids, which had cipher acquisition as a secondary objective, and which Bletchley staff helped to plan and then participated in. The material they got helped to ensure that the settings used by German surface ships in home waters, and also by U-boats in the Arctic, were broken every day thereafter for the rest of the war. Intelligent gathering units like the SIS and SOE don't operate in a vacuum, but rather contribute to the wider strategic and military context in the government's war efforts. But not very much is known about this aspect of their work. By looking at the rationale behind their actions, you've been able to show how their operations contributed to feats as significant as disrupting the Nazis' atomic weapons program. Can you talk about this, including one that SOE's most spectacular missions, Operation Gunnicide, which halted German heavy water production, a major component of atomic bombs. In Norway, SIS was very largely responsible to the Naval Intelligence Department, or NID, because of the importance of the naval intelligence it required. NID specified the requirements it needed to be met and were increasingly satisfied with the results. SIS also met some other non-naval intelligence requirements. For example, by using Norwegian intermediaries working for XU, who either lived in or visited Germany and debriefed Germans providing intelligence on a variety of subjects, including the German missile and atomic programs. The ministers responsible for SOE, first of all, Hugh Dalton and then Lord Selborne, also ran the Ministry of Economic Warfare, which played a key role in determining how to attack the German war effort. For example, by May 1940, just a month after the German invasion, they had already produced a list of six important minerals produced in Norway and their whereabouts, which they wished to be denied to the Germans. Operation Gunnicide against the heavy water plant at Vermork was slightly different. Heavy water was considered to be so important because of its presumed value to the German attempt to develop an atomic weapon 
that the requirement to destroy it was set and overseen by the War Cabinet. Operation Freshman, a tragic disaster when almost all of those involved were either killed in crashes or murdered by the Germans, was followed by Gunnicide, which was an outstanding success and described by the German Commander-in-Chief von Falkenhorst as the most splendid coup he had seen. Incidentally, we now know, of course, that it was isotope separation rather than heavy water which was the right path to developing an atomic weapon. That doesn't mean that gunicide and its consequences were a waste of time. These repeated and successful attempts to disrupt the production of heavy water would have encouraged the Germans to think that they were on the right track and not to consider diverting resources elsewhere into what could have been more profitable lines of research. Operation Gunnicide, as you described, was one of the SOE's most famous operations. SIS achievements, as such, are a little less well known. What were some of the most significant SIS operations in Norway? At the end of the war, Finn Nagel, the head of the Norwegian Intelligence Office, claimed that Norwegian SIS agents had provided reporting which, to a greater or lesser extent, had contributed to the sinking of the Bismarck, Scharnhorst and Tirpitz and also to the damage caused to the Prince Eugen, Hipper, and Admiral Scheer. The agents usually didn't realize the significance of their reporting because they only rarely received feedback. A Skylark agent in Trondheim reported the arrival of three destroyers there in May 1941 and was briefly complimented by SIS, but only found out 40 years later that it was this report which had enabled the Admiralty to conclude that the destroyers had detached from the Bismarck, which they had been escorting, which meant that the Bismarck was intending to break out into the Atlantic. She was sunk shortly afterwards. Ole Snierfalor, who ran the Crux station, was credited by Eric Welsh, the SIS controlling officer, with reporting which led to the sinking of 12 merchant ships in a six-month period. There are plenty of other examples just about the same as that. In your book, you provide new and exciting information regarding German efforts to plant agents in Britain. What do the archives say about these attempts? How successful they were and the rationale behind these efforts? There were in all some 20 German attempts to send agents to Britain from Norway, a remarkably large number. Sometimes they traveled with groups of genuine refugees, which could make them harder to detect. Thanks in no small part to intercepts by Bletchley Park of Abwehr, that's German military intelligence messages, the security service were able to intercept and arrest many of them. But not all, as coverage wasn't always comprehensive. In November 1940, two Abwehr agents sailed to Shetland and managed to lure three SOE agents into travelling back with them to Norway, where they were caught and executed. Several more managed to get through the clearance procedures for refugees arriving from Europe. One became skipper of a Shetland's bus transport across the North Sea. He appears to have quietly changed sides without owning up and was later captured by the Germans, ending up in a German concentration camp. He survived the war. Another, a radio operator, was arrested just before the ship on which he was serving sailed on an Atlantic convoy. Their tasking changed as the war progressed, 
Some were ill-suited to their work anyway and wouldn't have lasted long. Others could have done a great deal of damage if they had evaded detection. With the wealth of new material from Norwegian archives sharing insight into the war efforts of the UK, Norway and other allies, what would you say was the most surprising piece you came across? Now that's a really good question. Robbie's DSO citation would be a good candidate, but I think I'll pick something which comes from a completely unexpected and unlikely source, the archives of the NKVD, the Russian intelligence service during the war, and which was obtained during a brief period in the 1990s when they were open to foreign researchers. It's two reports written by Kim Philby, an SIS officer who was also a long-standing Russian spy, and who was at that time working in Section 5, responsible for counter-espionage. He provided details to his Russian masters of reporting from an Abwehr officer then serving in northern Norway, whom SIS ran as an agent in Norway for the whole of the war. So it shows the Russians spying on the British, spying on the Germans, spying on the Russians and also on the Norwegians. Apart from a brief reference in a post-war security service document, this is the only evidence of the fact that this clearly very valuable agent existed. He doesn't appear in the official history of SIS and we know no more about him. to move on to the feature section of the podcast where we look at the researcher behind the research and what compels them to explore their area of expertise in the world of war studies. Digging up undiscovered stories from the past is quite the achievement. How did you feel once you had tapped into such treasure troves of information? Oh it's a great feeling. Particularly it follows a period when your research has been unproductive as sometimes happens. It helps to reassure you that what you're doing is proving worthwhile. And it might also provide clues that can help you to explore other avenues for research. And worthwhile it's been, I mean, you've definitely published a fantastic book out of it. And I can only guess that many of the archives you discovered were written in Norwegian. Was that a hurdle in the research you undertook? I've been lucky enough to live in Norway for five years and I speak Norwegian, so that really wasn't a problem for me. Some of the material was in English, more of it was in Norwegian, so it was a question of joining up the dots. And how long did it take you to actually learn Norwegian? I spent about four months here before I left for Norway learning it, and then another year. I was very fortunate because a lot of Norwegians I I met for business um, would uh, be tolerant enough to allow me to speak Norwegian, even though that meant our meetings lasted two or three times longer. Uh, So uh, they helped me a lot. And then in the end, Uh, I only ever spoke Norwegian with them, so they they really helped me a lot. And it's fantastic that you're able to learn a foreign language. So with so much information already out there regarding World War II, why is it so important that we continue to research the inner workings of such intelligence services and the light they shed on allied relationships? Well, first I hope that books like this and others on different subjects which have recently been published show that we can never say that we know everything about a particular historical subject or event. There's almost always something which we can unearth or different threads which we can draw together, which provide new insights or new conclusions. So what's been either the worst part or the highlight of your career so far? 
Well, that's quite a hard question because I've been lucky enough to have had all sorts of different experiences. But I'll choose something Norwegian with a strong historical flavour. It's mainly a highlight, but not entirely, as you'll see. A few years ago, when I was researching my PhD on relations between the British and Norwegian Labour parties just after the war, I wanted to interview Håkon Lee, who'd been secretary of the Norwegian Labour Party from 1945 to 1963. My interest was in the extent of the secret cooperation between Lee and Dennis Healy, then International Secretary of the Labour Party and later Chancellor of the Exchequer, in disseminating anti-communist propaganda produced by the Foreign Office Information Research Department, set up by Bevin in 1948 to counter Russian influence. At the time, in 2005, Lee was 99 years old and still living on his own in a little house on Ulvoya, or Wolf Island, a small island in the Oslo Fjord. I met him several times and would ring him up beforehand to tell him what I wanted to discuss, so he had time to think about it. This worked very well, for his mind was still very clear and focused, and he gave me some useful information for my research, but plenty more about other aspects of party or personal history. Lee had joined the party, known as DNA, aged 16 in 1921. At that stage, DNA was far left and had affiliated to the Communist International or Comintern. By 1923, they were getting fed up with the control which Moscow wanted to exercise and wanted to break away. Stalin sent one of his most trusted commissars, Nikolai Bukharin, to try unsuccessfully to prevent it. Hawkon provided a graphic description of the heated discussions which took place or his visit to Moscow in the early 1930s when he met a young Norwegian DNA colleague, Rosa Martinson, who had fallen in love with a Russian and had given up her Norwegian citizenship to protect him at a time when close associations with foreigners could be dangerous. Her circumstances had become intolerable and she wanted to leave, but without a passport, was unable to do so. Despite pulling all sorts of strings, Håkon couldn't help her. She disappeared in the Stalinist terror, and that, and other things which he saw during his visit, made Håkon a convinced anti-communist. Or his visits to Spain to support the Republicans during the Spanish Civil War, and subsequently addressing thousands of interested supporters in the near-Arctic January cold of an Oslo winter. Or the DNA debate in early 1949, which led to the historic decision that Norway should be a founder member of NATO all wonderful and graphic living history. You don't find many opportunities like that. The worst part happened afterwards. Håkon told me about his wartime experiences and explained that after working for the resistance following the German invasion, he had had to leave for Sweden and was invited over to London by Dalton to help the Ministry of Economic Warfare's work by contributing to their assessments of suitable targets for SOE to work against in Norway. I didn't follow that up because I wasn't interested in the subject at, at that time and had other questions to ask. Now, I wish I had, because the records of MEW's work are scarce and their activities ill-described, and Hawkon could have told me a lot which I might have used in this book. The moral of that, as one of my daughters-in-law points out, is that if you snooze, you lose. Well, I may not have lost, but I certainly missed an opportunity. 
Well, I definitely don't think you lost because you had the world to gain from that interview and also subsequently all the stories that you've told in your book. Um, so what's next for you? Well, that's difficult to say because all the archives are currently closed. So I can't do the research that's necessary to evaluate two or three different projects I'm considering and decide which one I want to take forward. But I'm doing a lot of preparatory work and I'll be ready to get going once their doors open again. So I just want to take this opportunity to thank you for being on the War Studies podcast. It's been an absolute pleasure. And in the stories and the insights you've given us into the intelligence service during World War II, it's been an honour and a privilege. So thank you. Thank you very much for the invitation. I've really appreciated it too. You have been listening to the War Studies podcast, produced and edited by Lizzie Ellen and Aisha Khan from the School of Security Studies at King's College London. For more information on our work and to sign up to receive regular updates, please visit our website, which you'll find in the podcast description. If you've enjoyed this episode, please rate and review us on your preferred podcast provider. It really helps us reach more listeners. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time on the War Studies Podcast. Thank you.